This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. Our guests today are Anastasis Spiliadis and Dr. Anna Hutchinson, both former clinicians at the Tavistock Gender Identity Development Service in the UK. Anastasis is a psychotherapist and psychologist based in London and Athens, working with individuals, couples, and families. He works clinically in private practice and as an education lead in the NHS. He worked in the Gender Identity Development Service at the Tavistock Clinic as a clinician and trainer between 2015 and 2019, where he also established and led a family therapy clinic. There he witnessed and reported unethical clinical practices alongside some thoughtful work by other therapists. He disagreed openly with the service's treatment model and in 2017 coined the term gender exploratory therapy to develop a therapeutic approach away from conversion and affirmative practices. Dr. Anna Hutchinson is a London-based clinical psychologist with 25 years of frontline experience. She is the co-director of an independent practice and employed by the NHS as an education lead. Clinically, she specializes in adolescent mental health, gender, and physical health. Anna worked in the Gender Identity Development Service at the Tavistock Clinic at a senior level between 2013 and 2017, where she witnessed unprecedented changes in the patient demographics, referral numbers, and an emerging evidence base that challenged practice. Her publications document a shift in her thinking as a result. In 2016, she was writing from a gender affirmative position. By 2019 to 2020, she was discussing rapid, late-onset gender dysphoria and transition regret. Her testimony, alongside those of many colleagues, formed a key part of the narrative in Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's Gender Service for Children by Hannah Barnes. And here's our conversation with Anastasis and Anna. All right, welcome back to Transparency. Um, it's been a minute, so uh, thanks for uh, thanks for sticking with us. Um, I am, of course, Aaron Terrell, uh, joined as always by uh, Aaron Kimberly, and we are uh, very delighted to have uh, Anastasis and Anna from the uh, former Tavistock Gender Clinic uh, with us today to talk about uh, uh, that whole experience. So thank you both very much for being here. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, thank you for the invite. Thank you. Of course. All right, so it's been a minute since uh, since the whole <clears throat> the whole storm of the um, the cast review and then e- even the the time to think book. Um, <clears throat> what's kind of changed, or what's maybe that's not how to, to answer the, ask the question. Maybe let's just go right back to the very very beginning. You um, you Anna were there from uh, 2013 um, until the 2020 explosion, or or you left in 2017. I left in 2017. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And Anastasis, that's kind of when you you got there a couple of years earlier than that, and uh, you were both there for the um, what you what you called Anna the, the hockey stick uh, uh, uptick, and you know, we've all seen the graph. So you guys were right there uh, at that 2015 um, explosion. So yeah, if you just kind of want to talk about your early, the, you know, the beginnings uh, of being there and what it kind of become became, and then the whole whistleblowing um, uh, that followed. Oh, where should we start? I, I mean, <laughs> that was a lot. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot. Um, 
So Anastasia, I started a couple of years before you. Yes, and I was always interested in knowing how come you joined JIDS. I've never asked you actually the question. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, so I'm a clinical psychologist and I've, I'm one of those really boring people who started studying something as a teenager and still doing the thing that they studied. Um, and I've spent all my adult career in the hospitals in London, mainly working in health psychology. So, so some sometimes conditions which where the psychological aspect is very minimal. It's more about managing a condition like cancer. Um, and sometimes in conditions where the psychological aspect is really key, like chronic pain, things like that. Um, and so I was just a, a jobbing psychologist and I actually knew Polly Carmichael from my job in um, at Great Ormond Street Hospital. So I knew the team and it was just, uh, a, very, <laughs> just a job. And I didn't really think too much about it. You know, it was like, oh, that sounds really fascinating. And I moved over. How about you, Anastasis? How did you end up there? I, I joined in 2015. And in 2013, I was finishing my clinical training in systemic and family psychotherapy at the Maudsley in London. And at the time, I, among other young people I was working with and families, I also had two young people who were exploring their gender and both of them meeting criteria for gender dysphoria. And what got me uh, interested in the work was that one young person ended up desisting when I thought they would not desist. And I was really surprised because at the time I only knew about affirmation and I thought that this young person would go down the route of medication and transitioning. The other young person actually persisted. They continued with the identification. And when the job came up at the Tavistock, I was very interested. I thought that this would be the kind of work I would be doing in terms of exploring and proper therapeutic work. So there had no... Uh, experience working in a gender service, but mainly needing disorder and generic mental health services, I just thought it would be a great opportunity for me to join JEDS with a great reputation of the TAVI. One of the things yeah. I'm curious about, I mean, Aaron and I both represent, you know, probably at least some of the young people that were going through the program, um, you know, both experiencing childhood onset gender dysphoria. So I'm just curious from the from a patient's perspective, what that pathway would have looked like. What 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 would we have experienced the children had we shown up at your clinic? Well, it would depend when you showed up. I would I would say. Um, so I think before, so I joined 2013, just as it was all beginning to kick off in terms of the numbers, and then I went on that leave for years. So then rejoined in 2014. But um, I think before I was there. I think it was a slightly different culture. And if we look back at the the uh, early clinic, which was uh, managed by a psychiatrist called Dicegli, um, I think there were I think it was quite a therapeutic surface. I think it there were, you know, it was watchful waiting, essentially. Um, I, I mean, there's videos of, of his work and the team's work with young people from sort of the 90s. It's therapeutic essentially but mainly probably because the medical pathway hadn't come in really by then mm -hmm. um so that's how it evolved and then gradually you know the the blockers became part of the picture and then and also in the background society was changing as well yeah so by the time we were working there it was it was a very difficult very it was very difficult but it's also a very different picture so whereas if you'd have come along to the service in the 90s I think you've had quite a lot of unpicking quite a lot of exploration um thinking about managing stigma which was much more 
I think much more present because it was so much more rare you know it wasn't mm -hmm. talked about as much in those days I think if you came in 2014 2015 you'd experience it much more as an assessment service but but also and I think it would it would also be based on who you worked with actually who saw you in JIDS because there were still some clinicians when you joined and then when I joined who were really pro-exploration but there was a cultural shift, as you've mentioned, because if someone looks at the publications coming out uh, of JIDS from clinicians working in JIDS in the 90s and early 2000s, they were quite therapeutic in focus and talking about therapeutic processes and exploration, even though the word exploration was not mentioned much in, in most of the papers uh, in, in, in well-known journals and peer-reviewed journals. But then I think from 2012, 2013, if you look at the papers, they were more descriptive, more talking about statistics, but there was an absence of papers talking about the therapeutic processes. So yes, this kind of fits with what you're saying, Anna, that from a more therapeutic kind of approach, it got into more assessment-y type of work. Yeah. So when, uh, roughly when did that shift happen? I don't know if you could, if you could put a line in the sand. I think it was gradual. It was um, and I think it was alongside the development of the affirmative model that was coming in from the states as well so you've got the dutch team doing their work and then you've got spac uh doing his work in the states and this sort of the combination of the american i'm gonna, I'm gonna give it to you guys i'm gonna give it to america the american affirmative model the european the dutch medical model and that was sort of developing in the background and then by the time we started in the service this had sort of become a merged model which was affirmative medical and the kind of the mainstream what you do you know so that's so so yeah if if you'd come in 2013 2014 2015 probably you'd have experienced it again right so anesthetics is really key it's really right that you talk about that because some of the um reviews of the service have talked about the fact that depending on your clinician you might have had a different experience because your clinician might have a different set of beliefs or theories driving their work so it was a bit of what they called a clinician lottery but essentially the service did call itself an assessment service but also the kind of further development of the affirmative approach and it trickled down more into Europe this really also coincided with a change of leadership uh, in JED so Anna mentioned Domenico Di Cella, who was also a psychoanalyst and but also really into systemic and family psychotherapy. And this coincided with a change in leadership, I think between 2009 and 2011, Anna, yeah. when actually I... the director of JEDS took over. And I think uh, it's interesting that since then there have been an absence of more therapeutic exploratory papers. So I, I wonder whether this actually reflected the clinical work and that it became more of an assessment type of work. Okay. Did young people need a referral to the service or could they be self-referred? Yeah, I used to work in referrals, actually. So um, right on the front line, receiving the, the letters onto my desk. Um, so they did need a referral, uh, but it could be from almost any professional. So it, and professional, including people who worked in charities, uh, youth leaders, um, and some of them were essentially self-referrals uh, with a named local professional. Yeah, so remember, was, we had referrals we, that were written by the family and just signed by the referrer. I do remember this, Anna. Yeah. 
so it was very open and and the intention was a good one it was uh to ensure inclusion to ensure that everybody could access help but when the numbers started going through the roof <laughs> what that meant was that was there wasn't um there wasn't the gatekeeping actually at the refer referral level really at all and then how long was the wait list roughly while while you were there I imagine that changed a lot over the years too but while you were there how long would the wait be I remember I joined in August 2015 and at the time I, during my interview in June that year I think I was told that it had shifted from it had moved from six months to eight months or something like that when I left JIDS in 2019 it had got into two and a half years of a waiting list so I think it was changing every every six months or so yeah when I started so in 2013 we were meeting the, the I think it was the 18 week target that the NHS yeah the NHS, NHS set for specialist services so we were meeting it we we're on top of it so between 2013 and 2019 huge hockey stick uptake um and huge yeah huge growth in the waiting list yeah were, were either of you or, or what like, like the culture within the Tavistock were you guys aware of obviously you're seeing it unfold but aware of the concept of the social contagion surrounding the the gender issue or was that kind of kind of looked at it in those terms later on or, or how did that come into play well we were experiencing it on the front line right. we were experiencing what people some people call social contagion uh, and it certainly looked like that on the front line um but we didn't have words for it yet in those days uh, and it, it was we were literally creating creating the service for this whole new set of kids as this whole new set of kids was coming in if you see what i mean the theory right was being developed and it wasn't necessarily being developed in um by us sitting down and writing papers it was being developed by us discussing with our peers and uh, bringing in other experiences I mean it was really you can imagine just the numbers and the change in the presentation which we haven't talked about of course because at the same time as this huge rise in referrals of young people coming in we had the change in uh, demographics um, that, that would I be a great thing to talk about because that's been my mm -hmm. observation as well, both from as a community member, but also doing the clinical work that I was doing is, is there does seem to be a difference in presentation and that they you know that spike in numbers is talked about a lot and the sex ratio change is talked about a lot, but there's something different about this cohort of, of individuals. So I would love mm -hmm. if you could kind of just talk about your observations about that changing cohort. It, it, it took me a few months, actually, to like, yes, my first three months to really acknowledge what was happening before, because actually before I joined JIDS, I was working a lot in eating disorders, where we would talk openly as a, within the team about peer influences and perhaps social contagion, not being the sole kind of factor influencing uh, what we see in eating disorders, but being part of a multifactorial possible etiology. So when I joined JIDS, I did not know that the majority of the referrals would start becoming from um, assigned females at birth or natal females, generally female-bodied people at the time. Uh, so I started actually noticing that the team, as soon as they joined, were actually talking about, about this change, that most of the young people were they were currently at the time actually uh, seeing were were born in a in a female body and then there were some initial conversations talking about social con contagion or peer influences but not really openly so we would talk about this within teams 
because many people were worried that if we talked about this openly at conferences, for instance, it could be perceived as transphobic. So that was my experience early on in at the gender service. And I, and actually that date 2015 is key because on, on the graph, so there's not only the hockey stick uptake, there's the sex ratio reversal graph. And it was 2015 when it evened out. So at that point, we, we recognized that there were more natal females or registered at birth females. Yeah. Um, and it was only 2016, 2017 that we realized that this number wasn't just going to even out, but was mm -hmm. increasing and becoming more, uh, more than the, the natal males. And with the age, the age differential, because as I understand, it's typically young. The, the, the male, uh, the male referrals were were younger. Is that is that correct? And then the and the females are going to be in their early or mid teens when they're coming in. Is that kind of what was reflected there? That's true. That actually, in in people before the onset of of puberty, prepubescent young people, whenever we train people, because it was also the the training coordinator, we would see that the referrals were more equally split. Whereas actually, in the twelve to eighteen year old cohort, most of the people would be female bodied people that were being referred with it with a massive kind of difference uh, between uh, female-bodied people and male-bodied people. And especially in the 14 to 17-year-old um, uh, cohort, there was a massive change. Yeah, and it was it was actually, I think one of the graphs, there was six times as many females as males in that 14-year-old wow. group. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Really striking. How, how were you making sense of that at the time? I mean, I mean, I think it's going to take us probably decades to unpack everything that's <laughs> happened, but... But at the time, I mean, internally, you're seeing this uptick in in females for the, the very first time. How how were you? What were those conversations like amongst the team to rationalize why that might be happening? So it was initially. Initially, the theory was, um, okay, increasing awareness in society. What this is allowing is uh, more females to access the service. This is a good thing. You know, um, and then it was in the years later, 16, 17, 18, when you see that the, the numbers just keep going through the roof, that it was kind of undeniable that something was happening. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, so if you think about what was going on culturally outside of the clinic at the time, which was, this, it was the development of the affirmative model essentially in the background. And it was, I mean, it was a time when there was, there were loads of articles in the papers there were loads of documentaries it, there was a lot going on in society at the time which was rightly you know trying to help reduce stigma and trying to make the world a better place for uh, people with gender incongruence or people who identify as trans so you had this kind of what we were seeing didn't fit with the way that society was making sense of the experience of being trans outside of the clinic and there was a real tension there and I think and yeah go on Anastasia. I just want to, uh, to to say that also this hypothesis that it was only due to greater recognition uh, and human rights and equality, equality which was a great thing and most of us actually agreed with and trying to to challenge stigma but this wouldn't necessarily actually explain the reversal of the sex ratio the sex ratio reversal would it would it Anna. So we started actually seeing also what else might be coming into play with this. And it's striking that this only happened, just thinking out loud now, a few years after the development of more 
image-based social media as well. I mean, we know that Instagram and other kind of social media that is very kind of image-focused uh, were uh, founded around that time, just a few years before. Um, but also, I think we need to, to step out of just the gender world and see what's happening in puberty. I mean, working in eating disorder services, we do know that people who struggle the most in this population and this age range, 12 to 18, happen to be female-bodied people, assigned females at birth, who mm -hmm. actually get referred to services like eating disorder, adolescent services, and body dysmorphia services, at least in the UK, that are more uh, familiar with, that is to do with challenges in relation to the body, challenges in relation to puberty. So mm -hmm. I think my, my sense is that it's not a, a single factor that actually influences this sex ratio reversal, but again, it was rather multifactorial. Mm -hmm. A number of years yeah. ago, I started hearing people make that comparison between eating disorders and gender dysphoria. And at the time, because I, I wasn't um, aware of this, the, the larger, the bigger picture and the social contagion, but initially I was sort of offended by that comparison because I don't think the original, what we used to call gender identity disorder has really much in common with eating disorders at all. But mm. now that I have a better grasp of, of this new cohort, and like you, Anastasis, I used to work in, in eating disorders as well for our provincial eating disorders program. I was there for about five or six years. And in that time, I don't recall having a single trans-identified patient mm -hmm. at all, ever. Mm -hmm. And I'm still in touch with some of the staff there. And I'm told that the program is now completely, you know, flooded with people with, who are trans-identified. And they're really struggling to find a therapeutic response to that because they're coming onto the unit, which was normally very highly structured in order to manage and contain the eating disorder behavior. But now they're struggling to manage behaviors on the unit because they're changing pronouns five times a day and then having meltdowns if the staff doesn't get it right. And then filing human rights complaints against the, the hospital because of their blatant transphobia for not getting their pronouns right. And, and the staff is really struggling. How do we manage this? It's become a, a huge dilemma on the unit. And so I think that, you know, where eating disorders and gender dys gender dysphoria converge is on that social contagion aspect that seems to be an overlapping population. Yeah. And maybe distress, you yeah. know, so so the the idea of adolescent onset um gender dysphoria around 13, 14, natal females coming in distress, wanting help. If we just look at mental health, and we've known this for years, mental health from childhood into adolescent, into adolescence, essentially at the onset of puberty, that's when young people are more likely to present with mental health problems across the board. So distress across the board, we don't have to call it mental health, but suffering, right? Um, and there is a peak in the female distress before the males peak, and it tends to be internalized. So the females present with distress that they're internalizing so self-loathing uh yeah sometimes body image um uh, poor self-esteem low confidence perfectionism all of these kind of internalizing problems and then a bit later on you see the boys present to services but with externalizing problems so behavioral problems so you can see how if we think of gender related distress as different from trans as an expression of suffering then that really does map on to what we already know about mental health in adolescence and, and development. But even, even if we don't look just in 
gender uh, related gender identity services if we look into community samples we do have great kind of long term studies and follow up studies from the um, uh, from Australia and even New Zealand on body image and body uneasiness and we do see that there are far more uh, female bodied people assigned females at birth in the community not in referred kind of population that actually score higher in in body uneasiness i guess this is really good data for us to understand that perhaps there's a difference in terms of both of course the physiology physiology but also how one understands female puberty versus male puberty and what it does to feelings, thoughts, behaviors, and identification. So I think it's, it is rather complex. Yeah, and I, th I think um, something that plays a lot into this without even, yeah, without the, the social contagion uh, aspect is just that puberty is so much, does seem to be so much harder on girls than on boys because of the whole, you know, uh, you know, sexualization that typically follows not long after and they're too young to process it. And if they're uncomfortable with that in any reason, now they have this framework that tells them, oh, it's because they're really boys. And that's why they feel so uncomfortable uh, in this developing body and the, and the external response to that developing body. So it's, it's, it's kind of a solution to so many different adolescent problems, really. It can be. And, and I mean, what, it, what we're talking about, what, we're, what this conversation reveals is that the label... The, the umbrella term is such a big umbrella, you know, mm. and, and we use gender dysphoria or gender incongruence or gender questioning or trans. And actually, the the types of young people that we were seeing under that or those what sounds like simple labels, like a simple category, didn't necessarily fit together at all. Mm. Mm. And I think that's really key in understanding what our experience really was, you know. Yeah. So we did have you know the traditional long-standing uh young person who from the time they could talk had discussed gender-related distress and increasingly we had these adolescent onset boys and girls actually but um more girls um coming with distress and complicated lives incredibly complicated lives but, but how do we they didn't even really study the, the women that were at, um, showing up to clinics. I mean, A, there were many of them and and B, they all seemed to be the same. They were all butch lesbians. So they felt like, OK, we have we have our head wrapped around this cohort. So we're not even going to bother studying them. And so that we know so little about the girls that are showing up to clinics. So would you say I mean, were you tracking information about sexual orientation with these young people? Would you say most of the girls were same sex attracted? The, the, that was our understanding. I think we were talking about this as a team all the time. Uh, so yes, most of the people I can recall from the gender service, and for those of us for who for some time worked there full time, we were seeing around 100 young people or families per year. So we're talking about really large numbers, but most of the people we were seeing were same-sex attracted, who didn't want to do anything with a label lesbian or yeah. to think about same-sex attraction. So that's really interesting. And just to connect it to treatment approaches and the affirmative approach, it's really important to say that any kind of attempts to, to develop the affirmative approach initially were more with, uh, with male-bodied individuals. So yes, we don't have much on long-term follow-up studies, but even for the, the people and the researchers who claim that we did have something, this was with the old cohort. So remember we said that before 2012, it was mainly male-bodied people. So again, we were working in a service more in line with the affirmative approach, but with a very kind of new cohort, as Anna has said as well. Yeah, and you think about that medically. I find it fascinating. 
Mm. So we, we, it wasn't, so we've got a whole new presentation of kids. The sex ratio has changed. Um, and even the medication you're obviously you're giving these young people is different because one group is getting tea and one group is getting estrogen. And yet we're not studying them as separate groups mm -hmm. because we're kind of denying sex exists in this, in this cohort. So from a medical perspective, it, it's fascinating that you can get a medical intervention developed on one type of body um, and as a result, um, treating with one type of medicine the, you know it all switches around and you give a different medicine to a different type of body but under the guise of you doing the same thing and they're being inevitable am i making sense <laughs> absolutely yeah <laughs> i mean it's just fascinating isn't it yeah. and and the fact that we haven't split so the uh, well, maybe we'll talk about it but we did some research well there was research going on all the time but there was never an analysis by sex which I think was an element of almost sex denialism going on in the whole service because everybody was more organized around gender. And what does this mean, actually, that there were these changes happening? Yeah, fascinating. And in terms of, um, yeah, sexuality, same-sex attraction, there was all, it's always been the case, hasn't it, in all the literature. So the, the first Dutch studies, I think 100% of the females were same-sex attracted, 98% of the boys, something along those lines. It's always been there, and it was there at JIDS. In fact, if, if anything, it went down. And I think that's because you've got this influx of uh, the adolescent girls. And we don't know exactly what's going on for them. Um, so the amount of young people who are same-sex attracted really did go down a bit as a proportion of the whole. But what was so fascinating was, and, and it's still the case, is that the young people didn't identify as gay or lesbian or same-sex attracted because they're so identified as the other sex. Some with some of them, you, we couldn't even talk about it because it was like, well, no, I'm, I'm not gay. Not, just to complicate things further, they were not identifying as gender non-conforming either. They were identifying uh, um, straight away as gender dysphoric with a diagnosis that they had given to themselves, most of them. So really shutting down any thinking. And I'm saying this because we do know that there's a very complex interplay between and among gender, sexuality and behavior, such as gender nonconformity for all of us, not just for people getting referred to gender identity services yeah. and get people who would often come to Jade saying, uh, I'm dysphoric, I met all the criteria, not wanting to explore anything in relation to sexuality, but also gender nonconformity, which as yeah. a term, very much neglected in the past 10 years. But it's it's a very interesting one because we do know that historically, research-wise, with follow-up studies, there's a stronger correlation between early onset gender nonconformity and later life sexual diversity rather than gender diversity. Not that it doesn't happen for, ge for gender nonconforming people, but this is the data that we have. So I think we have, we had in the past as the NHS, or perhaps the gender service would have really, really neglected to think more openly and broadly about this issue, sexuality, gender and, and, yeah. and gender. And what I'd add is that, you know, we would, I think there was a lot of goodwill behind that yeah. because the young people, and it's, you know, it's still the case, the young people are saying, we don't want to, we can't bear to. This isn't how we understand ourselves. This is not a label that makes sense for me. I don't identify in this way. So, you know, just to be fair to the clinic, it would have been very difficult 
to go to the kids and say, hey, we're going to talk about sexuality because the kids were like, we're not here to talk. When, that isn't how I am understanding myself. And that isn't what I want to talk about. You know, it's also so... a failure of the public messaging around what gender dysphoria in early childhood is. I mean, uh, now that I have read through the literature and talked to so many people about it, I mean, I understand it as a developmental part of of same-sex attraction. It, 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 that seems to be what the literature suggests, that a lot of pe- adults who are now gay or lesbian adults would describe an experience of some degree of, of gender confusion as children. And then that that gets worked out over over time. And that so that and there's a paper, I don't remember who the authors are, but there was a paper talking about early childhood development of a butch lesbian identity. And and it, it, it maps on perfectly with what we might call early childhood onset gender dysphoria. Mm. And they they even describe it in the paper as a, as an alternative kind of approach to thinking about gender. But again, it has been very much um, neglected. Yeah, but I think there's a it's a very sensitive matter because when someone actually would turn up at the gender service and in their mind, as developing young people, uh, were conflating trans identification with gender dysphoria as always being the same thing, which we know it's not, and it it's not it doesn't always align. For some people, it does. I think within our society, we do know that trans individuals have faced horrific discrimination over the years, and most of us agree that you know thinking about equal rights and um, accessing to services. So I think many clinicians out of goodwill, they would actually conflate the two. And as soon as someone said, oh, I'm trans, irrespectively of their age, mm-hmm. many clinicians thought that there was only one way of being trans mm-hmm. and that their gender dysphoria was um, the proof of their trans identity. So it got confusing. I think I think you could complicate that even more because I don't think it's just the gender dysphoria. I think it's the gender nonconformity. So I think that's what people were seeing, you know. So these kids were definitely gender non-conforming, definitely mm. gender non-conforming, and they were distressed in adolescence. Mm. It's interesting you said that the, the kids were coming in saying, you know, having self-diagnosed I have gender dysphoria. I mean, here in North America and the youth that I was assessing, that has shifted as well, where the kids weren't coming in saying, I have gender dysphoria because now there's this messaging you don't need gender dys- dysphoria to be trans yeah. so they were just coming in saying i am trans mm-hmm. and what year was that aaron what uh so that was you? like a few years ago like okay. three yeah. five years ago because the other thing that you mentioned that around 2015 is when kids were more on social media most of them had a cell phone in their hands i, I agree i agree with that hypothesis for the for what's contributed but i think the other contributor is around that time we saw a shift from the clinical model of talking about this in terms of gender dysphoria to a more so human rights framework that talked about, so the UN calls it the uh, gender identity framework, and it bears little resemblance to what gender identity meant in the clinical sense. It, it's being used to, you know, this messaging of everyone has a gender identity Sometimes it matches your sex body and sometimes it doesn't. So that is the messaging that these kids are now receiving. It's not about gender dysphoria anymore as a diagnosable condition. It's about everyone has a gender identity and I can explore what my gender identity is and I can choose whatever gender identity I want. And and so we're seeing a lot more fluidity and a lot more opportunity for kids to identify into 
the trans experience who who probably didn't have any diagnosable gender dysphoria ever. Mm. And I think there's nothing wrong about exploration. The question is, how does this happen and within what kind of framework? Because at the time in JIDS and still in many gender services, people talk mainly about the two polarities. On the one hand, affirmation, which in most of the cases leads to 100% perhaps medical affirmation. And on the other hand, conversion therapy, which most of us who are clinicians and therapists practicing within ethical guidelines and in line with their professional bodies are against both in relation to sexuality or gender, the active attempt to try to change someone's identification. We know that it's, de it's dehumanizing and it's, it's horrific and it has harmed many people. But the question is, what was the alternative at the time? And there wasn't much out there. So as clinicians and scholars, I think all of us were responsible for in one way for, for what was happening. And this this is what with with another colleague of mine in JIDS, Dr. Chacha Clark, led us to to write our first paper together to see what happened with the people in JIDS who had actually desisted. Because we started seeing more and more people who were certain about their gender identity, trans identity, and actively requesting medical interventions. And for some reasons, they would actually uh, desist at some point. And this is what led us to gradually look into this and try to describe this cohort and see what we have to learn from these people. And what we understood was that with most of these people, what we're practicing was not affirmation, but rather exploration, which is what led us to coin the term gender exploratory therapy in 2017. So I think, yes, it was the clinical population, the, 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 the complexity of the presentations, but also the responsibility of the therapist of what do we actually do in the mm -hmm. consultant. I don't know, Anna, whether you agree with this, but I think it's it's very complex. Well, I've been thinking more and more about identity just generally and how do any of us develop an identity, you know? Um, and I think it's always co-constructed, isn't it? It's, <clears throat> it, it has to be co-constructed. Um, and as you were saying, Aaron, you know, these young people were, were co-constructing their identity based right you know as they should be able to on what they're being told by the adults in society about what these experiences they're having could be or what it is you know so they're co-constructing it and I think as therapists we were co-constructing mm. identities with these young people mm. and at, at that point we had a very limited we had limited models and ways of helping these young people construct themselves because mm. that thinking had become so uh, singular really for a lot of reasons because of yeah. all the pressures and I think I'm hearing from all of us it's not that we want to be policing other people's identities but I mean my concern as, as a clinician and as a parent is if it's the medicalization aspect that's dangerous if people yeah. are are constructing an identity based on these kind of false political narratives that they're learning from the adults and and the, the community and now in public schools, and I mean, these messages are everywhere now. If they're building that identity with these false narratives and underlying distress and then medicalizing, I, I just worry about the long-term tra trajectory of that. We don't know that they're going to persi persist indefinitely once they work out some of that distress. They're not adolescents anymore. I think the potential for regret is very high with that cohort. Yeah. Yeah, if it was just thinking about their identity and identifying as trans, I think that most of us 
would have no issue with this uh, because we do know that this can be part of our adolescence for many people, whether actually they would stay with this identity and it would crystallize or whether this might shift and there might be fluidity. That's another uh, issue and up for discussion. But I think it is the early medicalization that alarms some of us. And of course, it's not to say that medicalization is always is always wrong, but I think it's a massive decision that to my view can't be taken lightly and thought about within mm. or two hours in a consulting room. Mm -hmm. Or in the States I've had people who actually took the decision within 15 or 20 minutes with a pediatrician, not even a therapist, mm. or psychologist. So it's that side of things that has alarmed some of us. Yeah, it's the, 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 the risks are so huge. You know, the evidence base is just lacking so much. Um, like and we can't describe as an exploratory process because that's very individual, right? You're just getting to know that individual. Um, whereas the, the, I think one of the major criticisms and one I agree with, with the, an assessment model, I mean, there's lots of criticisms, but one of those criticisms, and we've known this within the trans community for years, that when there's a standardized assessment, we can easily just share what that assessment entails throughout the community. You see people posting it on, on, you know, social media. These are the questions they're going to ask and here's, and then coaching each other. Here's how you should answer these questions in order to, to get what you want. So it becomes a fairly meaningless assessment process. If everyone's rehearsing the answers, they know that you want to hear in order, in order to get the, the hormones that they want. And that's why I'm really cautious of the of the word assessment, because what is it that we are assessing? Mm. Uh, if someone identifies as trans and they turn up at the gender service, they might feel quite threatened that someone is there to assess their identity. And the assessment should not be about the identity, should be about uh, the clinically significant distress and how someone actually can manage this. So I think it's like tiptoeing and trying to to agree on what's the right terminology and the clinical intervention, what is it about? Is it about the identity or is it about mm. the distress? I think mm. it's it needs to be separated. Yeah, and it, it's sorry, the power. Ahead. Sorry, sorry, Aaron. It's the power, isn't it, that the clinician has if, if you are you're being asked to you're being asked to agree if somebody's trans or not, essentially. You know, and how can anyone know that? Because how, you know, what does it mean? <laughs> and we have like, even in terms of persistence, if we look at persistence data, we've got no way of telling. There's no evidence that can differentiate one person from the other in terms of who's going to be trans in adulthood and who's not. You know, so the risk is just profound. Um, mm. There. Mm. And we've so you... ended up, sorry, go on. Oh, I was just going to, so if you want to finish that thought, but then you left, you ended up leaving in 2017. If you want to talk about like kind of like first whistleblowing, because that would have been before even Lisa Lippman published her paper. Um, so you were kind of like going, hey, hold on, something's something's wrong here before that. Um, but yeah, sorry, I kind of cut you off mid-thought <laughs> with that question, That's but fine. if you want to finish and then. So what yeah. in terms of what what led to me leaving in 2017? Yeah, yeah. Um. I think I've always said that it was uh, my time there was in three parts, and the, and my first part in in the team was as you would in any medical service, trying to learn, trying to follow the rules, trying to you know be looking up to people in terms of them guiding me as to how to do this job well, and I was totally baffled because it, it it didn't fit with any of my previous way of working as a psychologist in terms of multiple hypotheses, and, you know, so on and so forth. 
Um, and then after about a year of that, I started thinking, this just doesn't add up for me. I can't, you know, uh, this child who's coming in with incredible number of uh, life challenges, you know, not just related to emotional well-being, but, uh, you know, childhood in care or history of abuse or, you know, these kind of things that are outside of, of their own mind. These are real challenges, you know, that you can't deny objectively. Um, the fact that we were making sense of them all in the same way, it, it just, I couldn't make sense of it. I wasn't using my skills as a psychologist to formulate, you know? To, yeah, so to, to turn have... off your brain and turn off your training, even just to, yeah. to do the so by, work you're being asked to do. I was like, well, yeah. So by the second year, I was beginning to, like increasingly, I would say beginning to say, well, this doesn't fit anything that we do anywhere else, right? Um, risk management, all of that. And then by the third year, by sort of 2017, I, I knew that I was going to have to leave and I knew that I was profoundly concerned about what was happening uh, to the kids. But it was, I have to say, it was very difficult to work in that environment and hold on to your own mind, if that makes sense. You know, so I knew I was worried. I could feel it in my body, the anxiety of working in a place where I felt risks were being taken with children. But to voice it felt difficult. There was definitely a lack of a desire for, to, to hear it. Yeah. Um, and so we had to, you know, so it, I never thought of myself as a whistleblower. I don't know if you did anastasis, but essentially I was just going up the hierarchy of raising concerns. Um, and we ended up speaking yeah. to the whistleblowing champion and then people like Dave Bell. But I was just following best practice, you know, by, by that point. I, I, I hadn't spoken to David Bell. I only spoke to David Bell after I left Jids, although I was I was attacked by the, the director saying, oh, you must have spoken to David Bell. I had never met David Bell at the time, but I had followed all the internal processes in terms of raising concerns to my supervisor, director of the service, CEO of the whole trust, and then in the end, the whistleblowing champion, at which point I realized it was going through the process of whistleblowing because... I was at the end of my tether and I could not believe what I was seeing happening in front of me. And I think mm. what really opened up my eyes was working closely with some other colleagues within the, the team who were equally concerned, not Anna, because at the time we didn't have the chance to work together and we barely knew each other, but actually other colleagues who helped me a lot with my thinking process, but also my role as a clinician, a supervisor and a trainer within the same team and seeing different things from different perspectives so having the different kind of lenses to, to see what was happening in the, in the team. And of course, my first um, option and my first uh, choice was not to go to the whistleblowing champion. This was my last resort. Mm. I think for, for a long time, for about two years, we or more than two years, we were raising concerns independently. And I only realized this when I left, uh, yeah. that nothing was happening and no one really wanted to listen or take the responsibility to do something about it. And it what was the response that. you guys were met with when you went, like when you went to each supervisor up the rank? What what, what kind of response? Yeah, did they I just want to say, I just want to say, it wasn't just us. There were many, many yeah. people uh, who were very brave, and and you know, from all um, different like, uh, levels of training. You know, some really brave people really tried to make a difference in that clinic. Yeah. Um, but we were all met with kindness. <laughs> Yeah, so there's this kind of this idea, isn't there, that um, people who aren't heard are 
uh, bullied, you know, and, and there were mm-hmm. things, you know, there were elements of that, but essentially we were met with kindness, you know, we just don't know, do we? How can we help you feel better? It was, it was essentially you were trying to instigate some concern, um, and it felt like a lot of the people that I spoke to couldn't bear to engage with that mm-hmm. concern themselves, perhaps. Uh, and so very kindly tried to help me manage my concern so a lot of the time it wasn't terrible treatment we experienced there were you know there were times when it got a bit heated but as a rule it was just very gentle kindness which silenced the concern so you'd have to come back and sort of assert yourself even more which is very you know and then you come back and assert yourself some more it was a, a difficult process but the yeah. reality is I think a lot of the people I don't know if you'd agree Anastasis that we were talking to I don't think they had the answers and I think they were probably just as concerned maybe just as scared as we we were and perhaps just didn't know what how to respond and this is the worrying bit actually if someone doesn't have the answer and we were all trained in well-known institutions and had completed masters or doctorate trainings when you don't know something you need to acknowledge that you don't know it and therefore you need to pause and think and you need yeah. time to think as Hannah Barnes book says as well so there was no time to think there was no pausing happening or enough pause uh, taking place and that is the worrying thing because I think this is when it can get into an ethical and professional practice it might not start from this it might start from ignorance and not knowing what the the um, the solutions are but if you don't pause if you don't think then you surely actually continue doing something that you see it's not helping then to my view actually you get into the unethical bit and this was all within the nhs an evidence-based kind of context that we talk about evidence-based practices and we were all acknowledging that we did not have the evidence base at the time yeah so it's really worrying and then seeing uh, research that is, is still coming out from from the service where now we have the data to support that not all people who got on medical interventions were helped actually by them now it's really really worrying but we only see the results five or four years later what was happening at the time we did not have the knowledge and yet people continued doing what they had been doing for some time I'd, I'd argue they did it more. It was almost, um, I mean, it was such a busy time, you know, the, the it's still a busy time. The waiting list is so huge, but it was almost people doubled down into the doing of the work as a way to soothe possibly, um, you know, it, it, to do rather than to think or to feel um, and to sit with what was happening because it was deeply, potentially deeply distressing and serious, you know. Well. Well, it must be a lot of pressure, like from an administrative point of view, you've got this two year long wait list, you've got, you know, all these kids, you know, this, this demand for the service and a high level of distress, while at the same time, you know, this desire from clinicians to to pause or slow down and and, and think it through, right? I mean, those two things are, are clashing. Yeah. yeah, and you've got, you know, and it's fair and right, you've got pragmatic managers who are like well we've got to get through these you can see how they're thinking well, you know we haven't got time for this almost <laughs> and it's like ah you know and it was just a perfect storm it was a mm. perfect storm perfect storm yeah so how did the whistleblowing process evolve from from there from the original sort of reports up the chain so eventually it was uh i think it was dave bell who was a, a staff governor um in the Tavistock and 10 
clinicians went to see him, which was a big, a big percentage of the staff team at the time. I think it was in the region of a quarter of the team. So a lot, it, you know, it was a lot of people. Um, and he wrote a very strong report. Uh, it wasn't a tentative report. It, 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 it wasn't, um, it wasn't soothing. It was really or containing <laughs> no it was it was this is there's a lot to worry about here uh, well because i think everybody else is sort of like i keep keep going back to the the frog and the heating water analogy it's like it just but for for david bell he'd been outside all along he was not he was not immersed in the in the heating water he just came in from outside going oh this is a problem yeah. right yeah. like he didn't have that that kind of conditioning all yeah, along. Already... in a different department but people felt that they were not being listened within the departments some of them which i was not part of these 10 people felt that they had to go outside the department not through the normal processes because even there we were not being listened but some people went to david bell a person of authority but not directly within jeds as the last resort i believe and that's yeah, probably I mean, why it was successful because he was removed from from jeds right yeah, yeah that he, was, whole culture. And he was prepared he was prepared to say it he was prepared and he he suffered you know because of it we all saw like the trust wasn't particularly kind to him you know and, and of course you know this is always the case in in any group if you if you're saying things about the group that they don't want to hear you're gonna you're gonna get a bit of pushback and and he did we i mean we all did um and then it went to some the the governors of the trust and we know that marcus evans resigned so it started to go out <laughs> it went out of the, that building in north london um and then you know there was the media became involved as well which and, and then there was the judicial review process and that's really yeah. ultimately what changed and that's what so it was ordered to do the cast report is that correct that that is what came out of the judicial review and nhs england they believe actually commissioned and instructed the the cast review but i think it's really important to clarify for people especially who are not from the uk that this was not a judicial review about the whole trust and there's some brilliant clinical work happening at the tavistock and i'm still in a way part of the tavistock through my studies so it's important to clarify that not all services in the tavi were as JIDS was, we're talking specifically about JIDS and not about other departments. There were, to my view, issues with the leadership of the TAVI, but very directly affecting JIDS. So not about other services. And yes, NHS England at some point um, commissioned the independent review of the child and adolescent gender services led by Dr. Hilary Cass. Uh, a pediatrician. Well, there was, there was um, the, the judicial review, which was uh, so powerful. And uh, with Kira Bell, and I think we all know Kira's story, which was very moving. And of course, she she was seen when I was there, when we were there, you know, yeah, which yeah. is very sobering. Um, and so that was going on externally. And then via the NHS, there was a series of review processes and CQC uh, did a review and, and they reported they they Yeah, it was found inadequate in many areas. Um, and then I think it was following that that NHS England employed um, the paediatrician Hilary Cass to conduct the review that is still ongoing and should finish this year. But along the way, part of that review, um, they've decided to close the service. So although it's still open uh, and, and they will say, won't they, people who work there themselves, you know, it's still open. It's really uncertain. It's difficult. You know, people don't know what's happening. And it's difficult for clinicians and families alike. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's been interesting um, sort of 
tracking the the progression of all of this from from North America because we're, what I'm seeing on social media and in the news is such conflicting messages. We've got on one hand the trans activists celebrating this decision that yes, we're going to have all of these new clinics opening up and this is and saying you guys lost, the whistleblowers lost. They seem to be under the impression that what you were what you were advocating for was just a banning of service and a a total closure of service. And so it's just interesting that both sides of this of this debate of um, gender criticals on one side and the whistleblowers on and and the trans activists all seem to be celebrating this decision as though they won, which I, I guess is best case scenario. If everyone... Yeah, and I think yeah that speaks to the skill I think of uh, Hillary Cass and her team. You know, an incredibly difficult piece of work for them. Yeah, but they yeah, I mean people come in at, at different angles because of course the waiting list is awful. Yeah, yeah. it's terrible. That you've, yeah. I think we've got 8,000 young people on that waiting list now, and we don't know exactly what's going on for all of them, but they're almost certainly all of them are pretty distressed, and some of them are going to be profoundly distressed and, and receiving no help. So I think it's absolutely right that people should celebrate that there's going to be more services and those kids are going to be seen. Uh, Improved hopefully. access to services, reduced wait times. So out of the out of the cast review, um, what does the service aligned with this cast review look like? What what do you kind of envision that these new services are, are going to look like? And I think we need to be careful because they are in the process of setting up the new service. So it hasn't started operating. So I guess Anna and I were just talking based on what we've read from the Hillary cast review. But my understanding is that the, the service model needs to change. This is the recommendation by by Dr. Hilary Cass that a single model is not fit for purpose, both in terms of the numbers, but also it's the first time that within an official document relating to gender in the UK, they're mentioning the word explore and exploration quite a few times. And for me, that's a significant shift. When, when we first published a paper on gender exploratory therapy in 2018, there were very few papers talking about exploration. I think as Hakim's book was one of the first in adult gender services talking about exploration, there was, there was very little on exploration and what this actually entails. So my understanding is that through the recommendations of Dr. Hilary Cass and her research team and the University of York, I believe, they do talk about how the development of gender dysphoria or gender-related distress, as they call it in a more tentative way, it can be multifactorial and there are different factors coming together for different young people leading to the development of gender-related distress and different ways that this can be alleviated, which sounds really basic, but this was never in an official paper in the past. And it sounds like my understanding is that they advocate for therapeutic holistic support as a first line intervention with medication. Perhaps I, I understand it to be as still being part of the of the offering, but not as a first line intervention as the very last resort. That's how I've read it. I apologize if I've interpreted in the wrong way, but that was my understanding reading the interim report. Mm. I don't know about you, Anna. Yeah, I mean, I think what she's she and her team have done is invited um, the management of gender-related distress back into mainstream practice, essentially. Um, and people were so afraid of offending and getting things wrong that there was a lack of ability, I think, um, when I was there, and that was some years ago, um, 
to make connections between trauma or other mental health problems and the trans identity that was just felt to be transphobic understandably because sometimes that would feel terrible um but what Cass um is saying is you have to take into account everything that a young person is going through um uh you know we have to have multiple hypotheses just like we would in any other service where we see young people suffering um she talks about multiple pathways in to gender related distress gender incongruence and multiple pathways out which is a new idea um recent idea uh because you know these ideas were there in the past we lost them for a bit we sort of reclaimed them a bit i'd say um so it's it's quite exciting and hopeful um how it will work in practice is still to be seen because is that what young people want Mm. is that what they will what is that what people will advocate for young people will they receive will they accept this service so you know there's a lot uh still to go in this story mm. I, I think um but what's happened is we've opened up ideas at least mm-hmm. um and I think the medical pathway is still there but in exceptional cases mm-hmm. that's all yet to be ironed out because I'm curious about that, because what's an exceptional case? <laughs> I would say every young person I see is an exceptional case, you know. I don't know how you'd define that. So there's lots to be ironed out yet, but it's placing the child in the middle of a multidisciplinary team, different hypotheses, um, lots more support, lots more support locally, so not just in these specialist gender hubs, you know, links with local child and adolescent mental health services, links with um, physical health, paediatricians, maybe links with safeguarding if that's needed it it's really just putting putting the service back into mainstream practice respectful like, ethical practice when someone yeah. actually the service saying look i identify as trans the answer is not to say no you're not trans but rather okay let's let's talk about this if yeah. you want a co-exploration as i say and as i understand it and from my understanding both both of you aaron and aaron i believe you're along the same lines i've read some of the things you have written and you're not challenging the idea that some people do experience gender-related distress, but I've seen in your notes and writings that you do also agree that there are different things that help different people. So in essence, it's the first time that this is being spelled out in such an official way in an official document influencing the development of a new service. At least this is where I understand we're at in the UK. And what's, I think what's absolutely key is reminding us all that we're working with very, very young people here. You know, So again, she's embedding it in the developmental model, bringing in neuropsychological knowledge, bringing in you know, all the developmental psychology that we've known about for years that did get, get lost a little bit, I think, along the way. Um, with family-focused approach as well. So you cannot separate the people from their significant others who are who actually have parental responsibility. So yeah. you can't isolate the kid, but it's actually working with the family and the young person. I hope the way your your healthcare system is designed, I mean, it's diff- your healthcare system operates differently than it does here in North America and, and Canada and the United States. Our systems are very different. But I hope because you have a centralized healthcare system with these hubs that that you'll be able to sort of design standards of care in, in a, you know, a process. But here in Canada, I mean, in, in for example, the province of British Columbia, the hope is that every GP and every nurse practitioner out there 
can can do this work and start people on hormones. And so it, it becomes very difficult then to regulate and have any oversight on how they're practicing. So it, it, we're, and that's what we see in North America is these very drastically different ways of, of practicing for some that are just like, you know, Planned Parenthood in the United States. I mean, handing out hormones on the after a single visit with no follow up care. Yeah. Um, versus, you know, some that are still doing more of an exploratory therapeutic. Well, we, I mean, we've seen some of those guys as detransitioners, sadly. Mm -hmm. um, so we've seen the whole spectrum of that experience. Yeah, you said you some, that some of the patients are quite young. What was the youngest patient that you saw through the service? Well, the youngest kid, go on. I consulted to, to the family was four years old, a very, yeah. very stressed mom who had brought, who wanted to bring her kid into the service because she thought at the age of four, uh, the young person suffered from gender dysphoria. I only consulted through the phone and it was clear that the young person was not distressed in relation to their gender. But mom was very, very distressed at the time. Uh, and the youngest I've seen in JIDS, I think it was it was six. Mm. I, I saw a few young people who had transitioned in nursery. So very, very young. They were, they were by far and away, you know, that wasn't, the main focus of our work but they were very young ah, I've remembered what I was going to say Aaron but it was going back to the idea of um helping these kids isn't just about the therapist it isn't just about the medical pathway but it's how society out there is making sense of the phenomenon that they are experiencing I think I think that's the real key because yeah. You know, an hour a week or two hours a week tops as a therapist, you can explore and you can deconstruct and you can educate. But if their whole education system, the whole cultural belief is telling them or helping them make sense of themselves in a certain way and it, and is telling them that people who don't make sense of them in that way aren't helpful or, or could hurt them, then we're never going to be of help to those mm. children. It feels like there needs to be um that's that's what i was wondering when you're explaining that that you're kind of like doing this the whole uh distress explore exploration around gender and all the different uh factors that could be causing it and and just doing a real holistic approach it's kind of goes it flies in the face of the cultural understanding that these kids are going to be showing up with which is yeah. trans is their identity it's not yeah. the result of any sort of um uh, you know uh experiences or um or or it's just not it's it's going to be they're going to conceptualize it as completely unrelated to any sort of events in their lives or any other kind of distress that they might have and it, it, so it's like what do you do with that complete cultural understanding that this person has i mean if they're quite young completely raised in you know it's yeah. um yeah how, how do you how do you bridge that i, I don't know and that's why we need systemic interventions at different levels, not just within the clinic. We need to think about schools. And in the mm -hmm. UK, we do some work teaching uh, practitioners who work at schools in, in two major uh, London-based universities. So trying to educate people at different levels so that they can bring this knowledge into schools and try to be more tentative and open up thinking and be more flexible. But I think we need this interventions at different levels as well in society because actually as you say then it does restrict the thinking and it doesn't mm. narrow down thinking but you're really right Aaron you know so we're there and we're known to be quite cautious you know we're known to be uh critical in the theoretical sense um 
and young people will come to us and they'll think, well, you're just a horrible, bad person. They'll, you know, they will come thinking that of us. So we have to use all our right. therapeutic skills, you know, which again, it's tough work. Yeah, it's tough work. But so is working with most young people and trying to connect to them and reach them, you know, um, it's, it's, it's what we should be doing. So mm-hmm. forming relationships across possible divides and understanding and mm-hmm. communicating. We're like we're on your side. We might not agree with you about everything, but let's explore that together. You teach me. You know, you show me. Let's look at let's look at Reddit together. Um, let's bring in your parents, let's bring in your teachers. What do they think? You know, it's it's really being creative and communicating that you care about them and that you're not invested in any particular outcome. Um, apart from I'll always say to the young people apart from I want to keep you safe yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm really honest about safety and I'll say you know I'm not always sure about the medical pathway and I'll talk about what my concerns are with the medical pathway but I wouldn't ever say you can't take it you know that's when they're adults I'd say that's for their them to decide right um, yeah. but, but we also- are working across divides Sorry, and yeah. I think it touches really well on, on the issue that there hasn't been much written, but also on trainings on how you connect with people who might be coming to a gender identity service who have faced a lot of bullying and discrimination at many levels. How do you connect with them therapeutically? If you look at the literature, there's almost nothing written on this. And that's why I think that within a gender exploratory framework that we teach upon and we, we keep developing, we need to pay a lot of focus on how we connect with these young people and families because sometimes these are the hardest people to connect with service users to connect with understandably so because they faced all this discrimination and horrific life experiences but unless we connect with them and we try to acknowledge what they're telling us and understand them we can't really offer much that's my experience Mm. if you clash uh, from day one it's really difficult actually to develop a meaningful and safe therapeutic relationship we we um we had this phrase that we had for years, which is like affirming without confirming. Yeah. You know, that's the key. It's like affirming you as a human being, regardless of anything else, affirming you. And I'm not going to confirm that you are trans and you're going to be trans for life, or you're not. I yeah. I don't know, but I can work with you. Um, and we can. What you're it. up against is a, is an internal trans culture of distrust. Uh, you know, distrust of clinicians. I mean, they really you see this online all the time and in groups that they they're coaching each other to think that all cis people are mm-hmm. not to be trusted. That they're all, that they're inherently transphobic and and by extension, any cis clinician is just trying to trip you up and trying to prevent you from being trans. I don't know how we even begin to shift that internal culture. I mean, we're just ousted from the community and called bigots. And I really worry about the the mental health impact on, especially the young trans people who have only ever known this this more political framework, and they've created their identities around a political framework. But every political movement ends eventually. There's no political movement in history that's lasted forever. And they've created their entire identity on a on a political framework that has to end. It has to be dismantled because of the harm it's doing. I mean, here in Canada, we just had a nationwide um, protest of, of parents and other concerned citizens about the things that are being taught in the school system and schools socially transitioning kids without any clinical or oversight or no parental knowledge. And the trans and LGBT community as a whole is screaming, this is genocide and this is, you know, anti, 
they hate us and well and even even the uh, the mainstream media there is framing it as anti lgbtq rallies yeah. that it's it's not about just the the gender stuff in the schools that is anti lgbtq rallies um just that, that telling all these young people that thousands and thousands of canadians hate yeah i mean isn't that troubling which is the, awful the, these are already yeah. distressed young people and now they think yeah. you know half well, see, of the country hates them well they think their own parents hate them as well if their parents uh, don't agree and often oh. we've got we have mm -hmm. that's what we're working with all the time parents not not who are because we go to safeguarding not abusive parents but parents who just simply don't believe the same things as their children and some of the young people that I work with go online and the peer group tells them well that's bigotry your parents aren't safe you need to seek you know you need to make your own family away from your parents that's so risky for you know vulnerable some young vulnerable young people but yeah there's a there's a real there's a lot going on in culture which is mm. making it very difficult to reach some of these young people we see the, the very similar kind of parallel process. Uh, I mean, the polarization that takes place within clinics, we see it actually within families. And I think that's really, really worrying. But this is what we have to work with all the time. And I have to admit that with families in Canada and the States, things are, many parents actually are even more anxious because of the threats that they would lose their child. So it is a really, really complex field to be operating in as a, as a clinician. Yeah, and so many of those parents, they go along with the medicalization, even though they know it's wrong, but it's like, it's that or lose their child, either yeah. through, you know, state intervention or their child writing them off and seeking, a, you know, a new family, etc. It's really, really horrific. It's really horrific. And picking up again on Aaron, up on the top of my, I don't know the difference, Aaron, but, um, <laughs> what you were saying about um, how this movement will end. Um, so if you have it's so heartbreaking seeing these young people who are doubling down on a belief system that you know has to be challenged, if that makes sense. So their identity is being constructed in a way where for them to be comfortable in the world, everybody has to agree with them. And that's just unrealistic. No, you know, that nobody has that. That isn't how it works for anybody. But particularly in this movement, with everything that's going on politically, these these young people are gonna have to tolerate mm. debate, disagreement, gentle challenge, you know, all of it. They've got to tolerate all of it. And yeah, they're being taught that actually they that 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 they can avoid uh thinking about these difficult areas they're being told that the world is going to be different in the future for them and the they won't have to hear critical ideas they you know they, they're being yeah. uh, mm -hmm. uh, they're being set up really because yeah. they're not being taught the skills because they might well identify as trans for life right and if they and you'll know this, if they identify as trans for life, they're going to have to be quite robust. <laughs> they're going to have to develop a way of being in the world where they hear things that are hurtful and they can still function and they can still live. And sometimes they'll have to address that. And sometimes they don't need to address that. <laughs> you know, that's that's how it is. And that's how it's for lots of different identities, actually. But they're being sold the idea that society isn't going to ever be difficult, challenging unkind 
And I mean, that's just unrealistic for anybody, right? And I think it's a harm that the that the activist clinicians who have have collaborated in this political narrative, the, the mental health harm that they've done to these young people by confirming that worldview and, and not setting them up for a thick, you know, a thicker skin or or just evidence-based information about what their experience means that would ground them in reality and help them weather, you know, these the the political um you know the political debate and upheaval that's happening it's one of the things that i'm most concerned about for mm. the young people who persist who who are going into adulthood who are medicating you know they're going to live as trans adults what worries me most about their future is not them because a lot of them are you know doing really well thriving but society and what this debate where we're going to go with this debate mm. you know yeah, that's definitely a concern. You know, we pulled the rubber band back so far that it could snap back in the opposite direction. I think the entire LGBT community as a whole is worried about that that potential backlash. Yeah, yeah. What is the future going to look like uh, for the for these young people? And you know, as we as we started at the beginning of the conversation, such a range of. Um, Young people and coming trajectories, development, trajectories, yeah. development. You know, and of course, some some will experience regret, but some won't, and they have to weather this storm or this discussion that's going on in society too. It's really troubling. Well, thank you so much to both of you for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's been really lovely to talk to you. Yeah, I enjoyed our conversation. Thank Good luck you. to both of you as Thank this you. continues to evolve. And I know you're still both passionate and care about the kids and are still in the works. So thank you for everything that you've done. Oh, and you too. Thank you. Thank you, both of you. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Thanks. See ya. Bye. See ya. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.